This is a very serious podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Splank Next. Today, Hannah and I will be continuing our discussion of robots. Welcome to Splanknicks, the Society for the Preservation of Literature, the Arts, Numinosity, Culture, Humor, <laughs> Nerdiness, Inspiration, Creativity, and Storytelling. So yeah, last night we watched Silent Running, which is a movie from uh, 1972 that uh, Mom vaguely remembers watching in the distant past. I would I would have been eight years old when I watched it. Aww. So um so in Silent Running, there are no live plants left right? on Earth. No, is that more amazing, Splanknik's math? I know you would have been six, six when this movie came out. What is wrong with me? Why can I not do simple math like that? It's so I funny. Know. I don't know. I mean, we're not. We're not paid to be mathematicians. <laughs> Thank God. Yep. Technically, we're not paid to be podcasters either yet. Uh, but, yes. you know. but you, our listeners, could help us with that if you yes. wanted. Yes. Yes. Buy us a coffee. <laughs> Silent running. Go. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, there are no live plants left on Earth. All food and sustenance is synthetic. Life is artificial, and it's characterized by sort of like a bland uniformity. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. what does what does uh, what does Lowell say about it? He's yeah, like, he says the temperature across the planet is seventy five degrees Fahrenheit, just everywhere. Yeah. Um, there's hardly any disease. There's no more poverty, and everyone has a job. Right. That was what he was. This uh, this discussion came up in one of the early scenes in the movie where he's arguing with the other people on the space station. Mm-hmm. Let's let's set the stage, shall we? Let's talk about silent running. Right. That's the the Earth has been basically deforested deforested it's been mm-hmm. utterly deforested there is no more flora or fauna on the earth everything that human beings need for sustenance is artificial and synthetic but mm-hmm. they have managed to preserve some of the major ecosystems in these domes that they've built and right. then launched into space presumably to preserve them in order to reintroduce these life forms back to earth when it becomes more hospitable so um, mm. uh, Lowell played by, played by Bruce Dern and his three crewmates are out on this fleet of ships with these domes and they and they, they care for the domes and they have these what they call drones and when they're arguing you know uh, Bruce Dern is complaining that he's actually eating food that he grew in one of the dome gardens mm-hmm. and they're complaining that it smells and he's criticizing their synthetic food that this isn't even real food and blah, blah, blah. he's complaining yeah. about it and one of the guys says what what's so bad on earth there's hardly any disease there's no more poverty and everyone has a job and Bruce Darren is like that is not good enough basically that is not life and as is the case with most movies of course mayhem ensues someone gets uh, beaten to death with a hoe the uh, the directive comes from earth mm. that we're abandoning this project and we're going to destroy all these all these domes and Bruce Dern is like uh, no you're not and so now you wanted to talk about I think the the droids or the drones in there I wanted to talk about the the end of the movie spoiler alert the movie ends with a robot or one of these drones um, alone taking care of the forest to me and I think also you to, to you when you were Six or eight or six. whatever. Six. <laughs> you said that it was. Uh, it was. It was. It was sad, and yeah, it seemed. It seemed futile to me that just the robot is left to take care of it because whatever sort of 
creating force you believe in. The creation was made to be lived in. And the beauty of it was made to be experienced by man, who is the greatest, most intelligent, sentient creation. Mankind needs the creation. We need to breathe the air. We need to eat the food. Uh, we enjoy the companionship of animals to a certain extent. So when the other humans um, exploded and Bruce Dern was left alone in the dome, it still felt kind of like, I mean, the, the death was regrettable, but it still kind of felt like a worthwhile project, you know. He's preserving this forest and these animals for for the sake of mankind. He has a purpose. He has to take care of the plants. But then when it's just this robot left alone taking care of it, it seems kind of futile because... Why couldn't he just have gone with the dome Yeah, into space? That's the whole thing about isolation. He had just the robots with him. This whole uh, thing about the forest and all of that stuff, it kind of made me think of like the first couple chapters of, of the Bible, actually. It's not, it's not good for man to be alone, so he's mm-hmm. going to go insane. Because human beings need human companionship as well. Because you can acknowledge that something is beautiful, and you can, you can enjoy that. But if you're by yourself, you can never share it with anyone else. Which is interesting, Hannah, because circling back just briefly again to mm. what it, the experience of people during the the coronavirus mm-hmm. pandemic lockdowns, the initial response of people I knew who were introverts, they relished it. I don't have to interact with other people. I don't have to go into work. I don't have to. But e- after a while, even the introvert introverts that I knew yeah. were like, "This stinks. This is bad." Mm-hmm. Be- and, and I think it was it was illuminating. I mean, the extroverts, we knew right away that this is not going to be good. Mm-hmm. But the introverts took a while to realize, I actually do need people. Yeah. And I do gain benefit and, and blessings from other people. Yeah. Well, that's because our society is was made for extroverts, basically. That's the part of society that we get to see. Because when we're in solitude, that's not society. It's solitude. It's yeah. not community. It's solitude. Mm-hmm. And you need both. But... Yeah, solitude is not part of society. The world is made for extroversion, but we also think of introversion as being something that we don't need or shouldn't need because it's not part of community. It's not it's it's a selfish thing, perhaps. Mm-hmm. What people think. So, a lot of people who tend toward introversion, they don't get enough of it because it's sort of seen as something sort of like antisocial or misanthropic or you know rude so i think that if people were allowed to um have a healthy amount of solitude community would and uh society would be a lot more fruitful basically well i agree because we we talked about this in our introvert versus extrovert um Mm -hmm. episode people need a balance yeah and because then the main reason is because that extroverts and introverts both refuel and regain their energy and positivity in different ways. Mm-hmm. One by solitude and one by being in the company of other human beings. Both types of personality need both of those things. Proportionately, I think it's maybe a little bit different, but we still need both. That was a bit of a diversion uh, mm-hmm. from robots again. Okay, so you know the um, the idea that so, that some people have that human beings are the worst thing to ever happen to this planet because we've, we like, consume and destroy and um, ruin the atmosphere, ruin the oceans, all that stuff. 
we do do those things. But the idea that we should just sort of stop existing or not live on this planet anymore or not live at all because the planet is more important, I think that that's, um, that's absurd. We are meant to be stewards of the land, and there's no reason we can't coexist with nature without completely consuming it or treating it like an untouchable idol we can't help but sully by our own very presence. We have to learn how to actually be good stewards and caretakers of what we have. That means sticking around and giving a darn, basically. That's so interesting, because it reminds me of one of the quotes from The Caves of Steel, where one of the characters said, the colonization of space is the only possible salvation of Earth. Their assertion in that book is, as, as Asimov's assertion in that book is, mm-hmm. human beings must leave the planet, otherwise so, we're going to destroy it. So it was exactly, yeah. your refutation of that concept, I think, was very, very well said. If we're doing something wrong and we're ruining something, the solution is not for us to destroy ourselves. The solution is to become better people, honestly. You got to do some work. You can't just, you know, exterminate. Exterminate? You can't just exterminate whatever isn't working because then there won't be anything left. You got to, like, make sure you got to find a way to make us work in tandem with the Earth instead of just just consumers. That reminds me of WALL-E, right? Yep. That was the the movie I was watching that reminded me of Silent Running because Mm -hmm. I, I think... I would venture to guess, I don't know this for sure, I'll bet mm-hmm. WALL-E was inspired by Silent Running. Possibly. Because in, in, in WALL-E, Earth has been despoiled by garbage. Yeah. The, human beings have left the planet, and they are off in a uh, space station waiting for the Earth to be rehabilitated. And there mm-hmm. are robots are employed on the surface of the planet to pick up all the garbage and pile it up. And then other robots are periodically sent from the human habitation in space to Earth to scan Earth for the reemergence of organic life. And this is the event that launches the the main story of WALL-E. I talk about anthropomorphic robots. And even though WALL-E is basically a little cube with um with with tractor tractor wheels basically and the other robot Eva is basically uh looks like a hard-boiled egg. They're so good at creating these these human-like movements and gestures and vocalizations of these robots and, and of course that's, that's good because these are the characters in the book in the story in the movie and mm-hmm. we want the audience to sympathize with them one of the things that i liked about this story wally was it's clearly a dystopia right but but it's sort of a, a good nature dystopia mm-hmm. human beings live in this habitat off in space and humanity is utterly decadent really they all sit around in chairs every single one of them is morbidly obese <laughs> Uh-huh. And they all they do is eat and watch screens and hang out. But they're very good natured. They're and they're and they're sweet to one another. They're like happy pigs. Yeah, yeah. And this is a children's movie, so of course mm-hmm. we're not gonna. I think that that's a rather unrealistic vision of what a mm-hmm. decadent humanity will end up being like. But it's it's a kids movie, so of course. And mm-hmm. the, so the so the movie is about one of these um, probe droids scans the earth and finds a, a living plant and take it back to the to the habitat mm-hmm. and with the plan that human man, human beings are going to come back to yeah. earth plant to uh, to be st- like you said stewards of the planet and do better hopefully so I, I i enjoyed that movie that that was good and of course it used the 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 anthropomorphic droids one of the things i thought we could segue into is something that remember we we talked at the beginning in the introduction about how 
uh, we're afraid that you know AI and robots are going to start writing our books, and robots are going to do everything, and we'll be someday subject to our machine overlords like in, in Terminator. Could that really happen? I don't know if it could, because we are able to be innovative and have ideas, but robots can really only work with what they've been given by us. Like they've had these things where they say, we had a bot watch 10 hours of Donald Trump speeches and then had it write its own. That's derivative. Yes. It can only work with what it's been given, whereas we are able to transform things in our brains and um, create new things. Uh, we have the ability to be, to be creative and to be imaginative. In iRobot, that story, uh, Robbie, the girl goes, she's looking for her robot, Robbie, and she finds the first talking robot. And she goes up to the robot and asks, have you seen Robbie? But the robot wasn't wasn't programmed with the answer to that question and isn't able to answer. I, I think it's unlikely that machine overlords will take over. I don't know, maybe they will, but it won't be of their own volition. Like, Google doesn't bother me. It's the humans behind Google. I was listening to a podcast by Jordan Peterson. It's called God and the Hierarchy of Authority. Yeah. This is lecture three in his biblical lectures on the book of Genesis. Believe it or not, in a biblical lecture on the book of Genesis, he's got to talking about robots. I mean, naturally. But what he said is this. In order to make sense out of the world, you have to have an a priori cognitive structure. Okay, what does that mean? Now, okay. So a priori means already in existence. Mm. It's already there. Okay. Okay. So what he says is, an a priori cognitive structure, you know what that means? That means a body with a brain. Right. You have to have, to have a thought, you need to have a thing that you can need have to a have thought. a thing that can have a thought. Exactly. Yeah. The other way he put it is you cannot extract or you cannot create from incoming sense data yeah. into your sense making structure. You cannot create the structure that enables you to make sense of incoming sense data. Right. It's infinitely circular. You've got to have the structure. Yeah, first. yeah. You have to yeah. It's like a chicken or the egg kind of thing. You have to you have to have a mind before you can have thoughts and you can't think a mind into existence for yourself if you don't have a mind to create Exactly. The thought of a mind. <laughs> you can't sense or perceive anything without a body. Mm -hmm. The body with the brain is the a priori structure. Mm -hmm. So so what Peterson says is you have to have a body before you can think. And even more importantly, you have to have a body before you can see. Mm -hmm. The act of seeing is actually the act of mapping the patterns mm -hmm. of the world onto the patterns of the body. Right. So another way of putting this is that we map, we map the patterns picked up by our senses onto the structures of mm -hmm. our brain. For example, this was a fascinating... I didn't know this was true, but he said, Did you know that a person who has been rendered cortically blind by a stroke, for example... Mm-hmm will still respond to visual stimuli. Hmm. And here's how. When visual stimuli, visual sense data, comes through our eyes, mm -hmm. maps itself onto our retinas, transfers from the optic nerve to our brains, mm -hmm. it goes into more than one place. It doesn't just go to the visual cortex part of our brain, oh. which is what perceives the image. Vision, yeah. It also goes, like he, the way George, Jordan Peterson put it, he says, it will map itself it goes directly to our spinal cord. Oh, yeah. And, for example, um, he said that people who have been rendered cortically blind by a stroke, 
mm-hmm. can see visual, like uh, human expressions of alarm or dismay or strong emotion mm-hmm. and still respond. Even though they can't see it, they don't perceive it. Like if you flash an image of an angry person in front of a person who's cortically blind, mm-hmm. they will still respond. They still have an emotional reaction to that face. Huh. And also he said, it, even in people who are not cortically blind, we have fully functioning brains mm-hmm. and everything. The act of, let's say I want to pick up, here are my glasses sitting here on the table. Mm-hmm. The act of picking up these glasses happens without my thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I don't go to myself, okay, there are my glasses. Mm-hmm. I see them. I want to pick them up. Mm-hmm. I think I will. I move my hand. I move my fingers in a pincer motion, and I'm mm-hmm. going to pick them up. No, none of that. It happens in less than a nanosection, nanosecond. Yeah. You see the, and you know exactly how to map your yeah. hand to pick them up. It's it's precognitive and non-cognitive. Mm-hmm. There's a mental exercise that you can do for anxiety and scatterbrainedness, where when you're doing something sort of like talking it out to yourself. Like I've literally tried this where I wake up in the morning and I go out and I say, okay, I'm going to make myself breakfast. And I feel really silly while I'm doing this. I say, I'm going to go make myself breakfast. So I'm going to have some oatmeal. So I need to get a bowl. So I go and I get a bowl. I need a spoon also. I'm going to get a spoon. I'm going to turn on the kettle. I need to put water in the kettle first. So I'm going to open the kettle and turn on the water and put water in the kettle. And then I'm going to put the kettle on the, you know. Okay. So you narrate this to yourself as you're doing it in order to avoid thinking of something else and going, oh, yeah, I'm going to walk off and do something else. Yeah, exactly. Instead of thinking to myself, oh man, I should get started on my lesson plans for later on this week instead of eating my breakfast, because I think that's more important than getting my, my food. That's interesting. So go, go on, going on with um, what Peterson was saying. This the, this is a long-winded way of saying we don't. I don't think that we're going to have robot overlords because mm-hmm. he says you cannot perceive the world without being embodied. Mm-hmm. And he goes on. He talks about how it has taken billions of years mm-hmm. for human beings to become what we are now, namely creatures capable of interacting with and thriving within a hostile natural world. Mm. Okay, and not only that, human beings can adapt quickly. Mm. to new situations and new niches, new ecological niches, new social niches in which we find ourselves. Mm. Um, I've been um, taking in and and following the work of uh, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying recently. Mm -hmm. They are husband and wife. They're they're evolutionary biologists. And they refer to adaptation as the superpower of the human species. Hmm. Um, They also believe, however, that human beings' technological advancements have outpaced our evolutionary adaptations. Mm-hmm. And what we have done, we have created a world in which we are currently poorly adapted to. When we get cyber brains, then we'll be fine. Cyber brains, right. Yeah. Yeah. If we will ever get cyber brains. But I don't, my, what, what, what Jordan Peterson was saying about how you have to have this, this body mm-hmm. that has taken billions of years to, to create so that it can do what we do. Yeah. So here's my... Yeah, I wouldn't want a cyber brain either. No. So what, what, what Peterson basically asserts, and I agree with this, is that, and he's talking about, this is his biblical series, right? Book of Genesis. This is how he circles round widely mm-hmm. to the, the biblical story of Genesis. Yeah. The biblical image mm-hmm. of God creating man out of dust can be a way of describing the divinely guided process of evolution. Mm. Okay. Now, people who don't believe in God can dispense with that part, but we believe that slowly building structure upon structure, iteration upon iteration, over Mm -hmm. literally eons, such that we human beings now have attributes that are baked into us 
that have come to us from our earliest ancestors, including lobsters. Peterson's chapter about lobsters in his book, 12 Rules for Life, is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So then, when in the book of Genesis, the way this is described as God breathing life into the human, did you know that the word human comes from the word humus, which means from the earth? I did know that. Yes, I thought that was so cool. Anyway, so when God breathes life into the human, that's a way of describing the human awakening to what we call consciousness, mm -hmm. especially self-consciousness. No other species, not even really highly intelligent ones, have the level of consciousness, cognition, self-consciousness, agency, adaptability that human beings have. Robots cannot respond to anything or adapt to anything that they have not been programmed by human beings to respond to and adapt to. I think that um, a robot Armageddon initiated by thinking robots is unlikely. Whatever Armageddon we endure will be brought about by human beings. Even that, even that robot that said, okay, I will kill humans, said that because a human brought it up. <laughs> you know. The Splanknicks Podcast is produced by Claire T. Walker and Hannah Kubiak. You can contact us by emailing splanknickspodcast at gmail.com. We welcome episode topic suggestions, personal anecdotes, and corrections for those rare occasions when we don't know what we're talking about. Visit splanknicks.com for show notes and transcripts of all our episodes, and follow us on Instagram at splanknicks underscore podcast. Claire T. Walker is an independent author with two self-published books, The Keys of Death and Startling Figures. Learn more about Claire and her books at clairetwalker.com. 